Hey everyone, welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series at the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Clem, one of the editorial fellows this year. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Kimberly Warkowski, a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory, a CDC medical consultant and division of STI prevention, and one of the authors on the CDC's new 2021 guidelines on the treatment of STIs. Dr. Warkowski, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Clem. Given the era that we're living in now, I think we should take some time to reflect on sexually transmitted infections or STIs in the context of COVID. What do we know about the epidemiology of STIs during the pandemic? So CDC once a year puts out surveillance data. What's very interesting is if you look at the surveillance data that during March and April of 2020, the national case reporting for STIs dramatically decreased compared to the same time than in 2019. However, after that period, there was an incredible resurgence, especially in gonorrhea and syphilis cases. So from the 2020 surveillance report, we found that gonorrhea increased 45% since 2016. Syphilis has increased 52% since 2016. Congenital syphilis has dramatically increased 235% since 2016. And there was a very slight decrease in chlamydia, 1.2% since 2016. Wow. And I know you guys might not have sort of the data to support this, but are there any theories or conjectures about why these rates might have gone up for some infections? Is it an interplay between COVID or is it behavioral change differences or maybe access to care? So I think the issue in March to April was definitely access to care. And as you know, everything was kind of shut down during that period of time. Around that time, there was also a rush for everybody to use azithromycin for COVID. And there was a problem with benzathine penicillin as well in terms of access to that with everything shut down. The other thing that was somewhat difficult that you have to interpret these rates during 2020 was the workforce shortage. A lot of the workforce got diverted to other things. So the disease intervention specialists that were kind of assigned to STIs kind of got assigned to COVID. And so some of the reporting mechanisms and things were a little bit delayed. So in the surveillance report, they really talk about that compared to the previous year. But I think all of us were a little bit surprised to see those dramatic increases after April 2020, especially in gonorrhea and syphilis. And those rates have really continued in some of the early data that is available, the preliminary data from 2021. Yeah, I think that makes it all the more important that we educate our listeners about how to treat these diseases and to look out for them. We like to give the listeners a peek into the guideline development process. And so we were wondering if you could give the readers a glimpse into the process at the CDC specifically and how it might differ from some other places. Sure. CDC has been developing guidelines for sexually transmitted infections actually for decades. This initially started back in the 70s when there were gonorrhea treatment recommendations. And at that point, it was more expert opinion and consultation with STI experts that would get together and review the literature and give treatment recommendations initially based on gonorrhea. That kind of evolved in the 80s to involve kind of a more substantial systematic review process. 
I have had the pleasure of being involved with this process. I joined kind of the process um, in the early 90s. And what's happened since then, we've kind of developed and coordinated with external subject matter experts in the management of sexually transmitted infections and had input from federal agencies, academics, research institutions, and professional medical organizations as all part of this process. And what has evolved over time over the last number of decades is basically making a systematic process where we review the literature and look at the previous guidance and try to see what's new since the new guidance. And we're trying to synthesize this information. And then with each kind of area of the guidelines, create key questions about previous guidance, and then go back and look and think about areas that are new. There's a section of the guidelines called special populations that has evolved in time to really target some of the special populations that may have special needs, such as persons that have HIV infection, persons in corrections, different sexual preferences, and think about how we should screen, what should we do. And so to give the provider an idea of what are the special needs of special population. So all the tables of the systematic reviews are available in a kind of a transparent way to look at all the data that was reviewed. We use the um, U.S. Public Service Health guidelines in terms of how to rate the evidence because people are very familiar with the U.S. Public Service Task Force, their ratings. And then we also look at the quality of the evidence. And so all those evidence tables are available for people to review. Then we do an in-person consultation, which for this version of the guidelines was held in Atlanta in June of 2019, where we review the literature and look at the questions in each individual area or section of the guidelines, and we discuss them in depth. After that, we develop a kind of a draft recommendations, and then it's uh, subsequently peer-reviewed not only by the people at the meeting, but we also identify public health and clinical experts outside that, that weren't present at the meeting to get their input. We also had a public webinar that we talked about the changes in the guidelines and then had public feedback about questions that kind of came up. As part of this process also, I think the other thing we're very proud of is that on the CDC website, and you'll see a bunch of provider resources that list things that are downloadable, which include wall charts, pocket guides, the PDF version. There's actually link to um, trainings that you can do through um, the National STD curriculum, which is kind of a, an online modular learning experience that can help users to learn and how to manage STDs. We also have a mobile app that we're hoping to update that you can get through the app store. So I think that's really helpful because I think all of our learners look to different resources to be able to get this information and for us to be able to disseminate it to people. Yeah, it seems clear that the CDC is working really hard to collaborate with different people and think of different methods to disseminate this information. As mentioned, the guideline and the CDC website has a lot of content and it's grouped into separate sections. We'll link to some of the evidence tables and provider resources in our show notes. And we don't necessarily have time to touch on every point made in the guideline today, but I'd like to highlight some of the major updates 
since the last set of guidelines in 2015. But for more details on those specific diseases, I encourage clinicians to read the full guideline available on the CDC website. So let's start with gonorrhea. As mentioned, it still remains a prevalent disease worldwide, and there are some changing epidemiology about antibiotic resistance regarding to gonorrhea. What can you tell us about this? Just to remind folks that gonorrhea is the second most commonly reported bacterial STI in the United States. And in 2020, there was over 600,000 cases reported, which is, as I mentioned, a 45% increase since um, 2016. So the issue is that gonorrhea can often be asymptomatic and kind of remain significantly underreported. So we think that we may have as many as a million cases that actually occur each year. And if you look closely at the surveillance report as for gonorrhea, there's actually a separate section on gonococcal resistance. And approximately half of all those of the infections that occur are resistant to at least one antimicrobial. So this organism is very challenging because it has basically had the ability to change um, in response to our antimicrobials for decades. Yeah. So what is the new recommended treatment regimen for genital infections by gonorrhea? And why are we no longer using combination therapy with azithromycin? So the recommendations for uncomplicated gonorrhea are a single 500 milligram injection of ceftriaxone. And this really represents a shift from previously recommended a two-drug regimen of ceftriaxone plus azithromycin. And really what we were doing with that was that probably about a decade ago, we started to see a small creep in MICs to suffixing, and we wanted to kind of protect the cephalosporins. And the reason to include the azithromycin was really intended to mitigate emergence of cephalosporin resistance. And then over time, we noticed a couple of things. One of the things was this increase in azithromycin resistance that we were seeing. And then we started to consider a couple of other things, which was the importance of antimicrobial stewardship, which was important not only for azithromycin resistance in gonorrhea, but also in other infections such as mycoplasma genitalium and sexually transmitted enteric infections like Shigella. We also did a little bit more of a deeper dive in the PK and PD of ceftriaxone and tried to work on some really good data to identify the optimal dose to treat. And so using the surveillance, the PKPD, and the issues with antimicrobial stewardship, we made the decision to not use combination therapy. And it really takes an effort to think about staying ahead of this kind of pathogen, because this is an incredible, urgent public health threat. And gonorrhea remains on the CDC list of kind of emerging pathogens for antimicrobial resistance. And I think it's a way that we're trying to stay vigilant and make sure that providers have the optimal recommendations for treatment going forward. I appreciate that. And I remember reports of super gonorrhea, quote unquote, going around. And so this, I sense, might be an effort in trying to prevent that from worsening or becoming more rampant. Another related infection that is often mentioned with gonorrhea is chlamydia. What is a new recommended treatment regimen for chlamydia? And what are some of the data that inform this change? 
So previously in the 2015 guidance, um, the recommendation for chlamydia was you could either use azithromycin or doxy. And actually in the 2015 guidance, there was mention that there was some observational data, meta-analysis, and some studies that have showed us that there was increasing concern with um, treatment failure associated with azithromycin compared to doxy, especially in individuals that had rectal chlamydial infection. However, we didn't have any randomized clinical trials, but that changed with the results of two clinical trials, one that was done in the US and one was done in Australia that showed very similar results, which was a stark difference in treatment efficacy. In uh, these two studies that examined men that had asymptomatic chlamydial infections and showed a very big difference in treatment efficacy with doxycycline than azithromycin. So based on the data from these RCTs and the data that we had been seeing over the years from the last report, it was determined that this was a better choice for the treatment of chlamydial infection, especially in rectal infections. And so that's why the decision was made. I think that both of these are big changes from the regimens that I learned in residency for gonorrhea and chlamydia. So I urge clinicians to review this and to sort of modify that the way that they're prescribing um, antimicrobials for these infections. In the 2015 guidelines, trichomonas could be treated with one dose of nitroamidazole or a one-week course of metronidazole. The latter seems to be preferred now, and, and can you explain to listeners why that might be? Yeah, so most of this guidance really came about with looking at trichomonas infections in women. And the first guidance actually showed that multi-dose therapy, which is giving metronidazole twice daily for seven days, was more efficacious than single-dose therapy. This was initially shown in patients that are living with HIV infection. And then more recent data, there was a meta-analysis and then a, a multi-center study of symptomatic women, again, demonstrating that multi-dose therapy reduced the proportion of women testing positive at one month by half compared to women that received a single dose. And so that really kind of changed the playing field for women. Unfortunately, we don't have that data in men. So we do have data both in women living with HIV and women without HIV infection that multi-dose therapy is more efficacious than single-dose therapy. So that's why there's a difference in the guidelines, because we just don't have data to state that yet in men. And then this new emerging sort of bug that you mentioned previously, mycoplasma genitalium, it's increasingly recognized to be a cause of genital urinary infection. Can you give us, the listeners, a brief overview of this organism, how it presents, and what we know about the complications of infection with this organism? Sure. We're continuing to learn a lot about this organism. We don't know much about the natural history of asymptomatic infection. Most of that is limited. So we have the best data in men, and it probably accounts for about 20% of men with non-gonococcal urethritis and about 40% of men that have persistent or recurrent urethritis in men. The data in men, we don't have much data in terms of the chronic complications the epididymitis, the prostatitis, infertility, we just don't have much data there. But among women, we have some more data. It's emerging 
that has been associated with cervicitis, PID, preterm delivery, spontaneous abortion, and infertility. And we do know that there's a twofold increase in risk of outcomes among women with M genitalia. So we're still learning about the natural history of asymptomatic infection. And the issue really comes about at this point, who do I need to test for this in terms of when should I use the test? Because we do have a FDA approved test for mycoplasma genitalium. And the difficulty here is that, again, we are limited in our knowledge of the natural history of this organism. And we don't know if there's spontaneous resolution, what to do in terms of asymptomatic infection. So the recommendations for testing are really based on symptoms. And the recommendations are really based on men who have recurrent NGU to be tested for M genitalium using a FDA cleared nucleic acid amplification test. And then in women that have recurrent cervicitis, they can be tested for mycoplasma genitalium, and it can be considered in women with PID. So the testing is really done in instances of recurrence if they don't get better with the recommended therapy for urethritis or cervicitis. And at this point, it's really not recommended for asymptomatic screening. And the reason for that is the natural history of infection. And also the treatment is very complicated and because of antimicrobial resistance concerns. And since we don't know the natural history and the treatment is somewhat complicated by kind of a two-step process, we really, in the view of antimicrobial stewardship, really want to make sure that we're treating people with what we know will work in most instances, but also to keep in mind that we want to be treating those that have symptoms. Yeah, I can think of a few women I've treated with recurrent PID who I probably would have warranted testing for M genitalium, but I hadn't thought of it or known about this at that time. And you mentioned this two-step process for treatment. Can you just relay for us the recommended regimen for this organism in the new guidelines by the CDC? Yeah. So part of the problem here is that there's a two-step process, which means um, two kind of stepwise antimicrobials that we would use. And the guidelines really break this down as depending whether there's um, resistance testing that's available. The problem that we have right now is that we don't have commercially available resistance testing in the United States, unfortunately. So if we don't have it, as a present, we start with doxycycline for seven days, and then we follow it by moxifloxacin for seven days. And dual therapy is really kind of recommended with doxy first, because we want to reduce organism load, and it facilitates clearance followed by macrolide therapy. If resistance testing is available in the future, then we would base our treatment recommendations if your um, isolate is macrolide sensitive or resistant. Moving on to PID or pelvic inflammatory disease, the recommended treatment um, now includes anaerobic coverage. What were the trials that led to this change? And what are some of the organisms that we might be covering with this new regimen that we weren't before? So what's interesting about PID is I think we've all been traditionally taught that um, most of the older data decades ago showed that the predominant organisms were chlamydia and gonorrhea. And then 
subsequently, it's been really hard to do very good PID studies. It's very complicated. There um, was a number of studies that have shown over the decades that the percentage of chlamydia and gonorrhea that are causing PID has really decreased over time. And the most recent trial led by Harold Weisenfeld published in Clinical Infectious Disease was really instrumental in thinking about anaerobes. And this trial that Harold published in CID really showed that bacterial vaginosis is really often present. And it clearly demonstrated that the addition of metronidazole more effectively clears anaerobes from the upper genital tract. So that is why before what was said previously in previous iterations of the guidelines, you could or could not use metronidazole. And this trial basically pushed the evidence to really show that you know, anaerobes are important and it makes a difference in terms of uh, short-term treatment outcomes with the addition of metronidazole. And I had seen that trial before these guidelines were published and had been incorporating it into my practice, but I'm glad that the CDC has come out and basically confirmed that to <laughs> tell me that I was doing the right thing. My final question for you is in regards to the prophylaxis of STIs after a sexual assault. It seems like in previous iterations of the guideline, there had been one general recommendation, and now there's differing treatment regimens for men versus women after an assault. Can you go into this a little bit and describe the rationale behind it? I think we really wanted to highlight that sexual assault takes um, place in both men, women, and children. And it's important to think about what the regimens after an assault should include. In particular, there seemed for women, chlamydia and gonorrhea and trichomonas has been recommended. But really, in terms of sexual assault in men, especially if they were assaulted by a man, the recommendations really are to think about chlamydia and gonorrhea. Trichomonas in a male-to-male sexual assault is not common. And so really to target chlamydia and gonorrhea and then think about other bloodborne potential pathogens, including syphilis, HIV, hepatitis B and C that are also mentioned. And then there's also a mention about um, the use of HPV vaccine if patients are not vaccinated. So I think the important here is to acknowledge that sexual assault occurs both for men, women, and children, and that there should be specific guidance for different populations. Thank you for that. Dr. Rakowski, do you have any final words? In particular, I want to just highlight the horrific increased rates that we're seeing of congenital syphilis. And that is really a public health emergency. There really needs to be mobilization of the community when a case of congenital syphilis is identified to see where the barriers and breakdown was. Was it a problem with screening, lack of screening in pregnant women? Was it that they were screened but couldn't get to treatment? Cost issues, transportation. So just highlighting the intersection between trying to control a sexually transmitted infections in the United States and thinking about all the different ways that we could have a more actionable plan. And I thank you for the opportunity to talk about the guidelines and to talk about STI prevention. And thank you for coming onto the show to really disseminate this information, get the word out there. 
and to even highlight some of the disparities that we're seeing in some of the emergencies that are coming up in the STI realm. As a pediatrician myself, I also am seeing alarming rates of congenital syphilis. And so I thank you for highlighting that. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Kimberly Warkowski for joining us today to discuss the latest STI guidelines. We are always looking for ways to improve our podcasts and educational material. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at nejm.org. We would also like to form a focus group to get more formal feedback. So if you are interested in participating, please also email resident360 at nejm.org. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. Opie Hamnick. Curbside Consoles is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of NEJM Group.